Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. It's True Crime Night number four, as we talk about a couple of classic tales of the wrongfully convicted. It's Patterson, New Jersey, and Bay Village, Ohio. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. Welcome to episode five of season four of Small Town Secrets. And that means it's the middle of the season. And that means it is true crime night number four. And uh, just fair warning, the gremlins are out in full force tonight. Everything that I have attempted to do. Well, now it's kind of Saturday morning. It's one o'clock Saturday morning 
Friday night. Everything that I've attempted to do today has gone belly up. So it's it's all going to go. I, I'm just waiting for it. I'm just waiting for it to all go just haywire right now. Um, I went and bought some stuff today to do a very interesting 3D printing project. I went and bought some... I've been having issues trying to get my prints off of my my bed. They've been sticking really bad. I've been using glass, which used to work great, but I don't know if I got some bad glass or something weird in it, and now stuff just sticks to the glass and I can't get it off no matter what I try. So I tried a piece of scrap plexiglass that was very thin and very bendy, and that worked out great because then I could just bend the plexiglass and the prints would pop right off of them. But it wasn't very big. It was a little scrap piece. And I was like, well, so I need to get some stuff that's as big as the printing bed. Um, so I went in and I bought some plexiglass. And I didn't have the plexiglass that was as thin as the stuff that I had. But they had some stuff that was close. It was a little bit thicker. So I bought some sheets of it. Uh, it was junk. It stuck worse than the glass. So now I have to go and try to find the exact like thickness. And just, ugh, it's terrible. Uh, let's see, what else? And then I bought some calipers for this project. Uh, they don't work. The digital readout does not read right. You, like, pull it out to 10 millimeters, and the digital readout says that it's at, like, 260 millimeters. Even though right there on the little ruler that's on the, the caliper, it says 10 millimeters or 1 centimeter. So I don't know what's going on with those. I'll have to take those back. Uh, what else? Oh, I bought some... I bought a can of air to to kind of spray out the printer and get all the dust and stuff off of it. Um, it's a little trigger thing. Once you press it in too far, pops off. And it doesn't spray very well. So, like, literally everything I've attempted to do today, all the purchases that I've made are all junk, all crap. Um, and then I came down here to start the show, click on Logic Pro, and it tries to open and it freezes. Tries to open and it freezes. Tries to open it for the only way I get Logic Pro to open was to go into my files and open up an older Logic Pro project, an older episode, so then I could get it to open and then go to file new and start a new one. But so that's what I've been dealing with all day. So hopefully, uh, knock on MDF or whatever this is, uh, there won't be any weird hiccups tonight and I'll be able to get through this and get the episode out to everybody, but I'm done. I'm, I'm done rambling. I'm done blowing off steam. Let's talk about tonight. Um, I wanted to dig into both of these cases because I've known them. I've known a little bit about each one, uh, but I've never had like a deep dive into them. And I spent a lot of time today when I realized the 3d printer thing was just eating up all my time. I was like, Gotta get, let's get away from it and let's finish up the episode, research for the episode. Um, there was a lot, lot more to them, like in a good way that I didn't know about. So what we're going to talk about tonight are two cases of wrongfully convicted uh, people. We're going to be talking about Reuben Carter uh, in Patterson, New Jersey, a boxer who in the late 60s, was arrested and accused and convicted and all of that stuff for a triple homicide. And then we're going to talk about Sam Shepard, who you might have heard about. It's a pretty famous case. Uh, 
his wife was murdered as he slipped downstairs and they pinned him for it and then he got off and a whole bunch of stuff. So I started digging in these cases. I found some really interesting stuff on both of them. Uh, you know, you, you think you're going to get to sit down and do some internet research. I didn't have to read any books. I think this is the first episode this, this season that I haven't had to read any books. Uh, just pure kind of internet stuff and looking in the doc, court documents and stuff. But man, you start looking in the court documents and you, and you start reading letters by Effley Bailey and you start discovering things and the episode just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So going to be a deep one, deep episode tonight. So I hope everyone is ready for it. Um, let's, let's just get right into it here. We're going to start with, uh, Reuben Carter and his friend, John Artis, who was also convicted of these crimes and the, and the small town, small city actually of Patterson, New Jersey. A man in Brazil dies from severe burns, maybe from a UFO. In Washington, D.C., Jack the Slasher breaks into a house and barely steals anything, but dumps molasses all over a piano and cuts up curtains and sofas. I'm Andrew Gable, and on Forgotten Darkness, I'll look through old newspapers and other sources to find those lesser-known stories of yesteryear. I look mostly at true crime and unexplained phenomena. So if either of those topics sounds like your sort of thing, check us out. You can find the podcast at ForgottenDarkness.Podbean.com or on most podcast apps. The small city of Patterson, New Jersey was founded on November 22nd, 1791 as a township and then reincorporated in 1851 as a city. It's known as the Silk City due to its major silk production during the Industrial Revolution. It would be here in the early hours of June 17, 1966, that shots rang out from inside the Lafayette Grill. The events that unfolded would dip Patterson into a mystery and controversy that would last for more than 30 years. Reuben Carter was born in Clifton, New Jersey, which is actually very close. Uh, you Google map and it's like 10, 15 minutes away. He was born on May 6, 1937. He had six other siblings. Early in his life, things did not go so well. Carter was sent to juvie at the age of 11 for stabbing a man. A man Carter claimed sexually abused him. Carter later escaped from that juvenile hall and joined the army in 1954. While in the army, he started boxing. He was unfortunately discharged in 1956 for unfit service. After he was discharged, he returned to Clifton. Shortly after returning home, he was convicted and sent to prison over two mugging incidents. Carter was released in September of 61. After his release, he got into boxing professionally. He quickly became a crowd favorite, due in large part to his short stature and tremendous punching power. Reuben earned the nickname Hurricane early on in his career, and by 1965, he was ranked number five in the middleweight category. Then it all changed on June 17th. The exact time is up in the air, but somewhere between 2.30 and 3 a.m. that morning, three barflies and a bartender 
were carving away the time inside a local watering hole called the Lafayette Grill. While closing up that night, bartender James Oliver was joined by some late night patrons, Fred New York's, Willie Marlins, and Hazel Tannis, a waitress who had decided to stop by the Lafayette Grill after getting off work early. As the four were gathered around the bar, the customers drinking, and James Oliver counting down the drawer, two men entered, one armed with a 12-gauge shotgun and the other with a 38. As the men entered and drew their weapons, James Oliver hurled a beer bottle at them, missing them. He turned and started running, but was cut down with a shotgun blast, scattering money all across the floor. Oliver, 51, had volunteered to work the bar that night. Then, 60-year-old Fred New Yokes suddenly slumped over the bar. He had been hit just behind the right ear by a 38 slug. New Yokes had been known in town as Patterson Bob, or Cedar Grove Bob, he was actually from Cedar Grove, nearby Cedar Grove, as a skilled billiard player. Willie Marlins was sitting two seats down from Fred. He was also shot in the head by a 38. However, the bullet passed through his left temple and out through his right eye, sparing his life. He fell to the ground and played dead. Marins, 42, was battling tuberculosis. He even had a special drinking glass at the Lafayette just for him, so he would not spread the TB to others. Lastly, the gunmen turned their barrels onto 56-year-old Hazel Tannis. The man with the shotgun hit her first. She screamed, no, I'm a mother and a grandmother. Please don't shoot me. The shotgun blast hit her and she slumped to the ground. It was then that one of the men spoke. The man with the shotgun told the other one with the 38 to finish her off. Quote unquote. He then fired five shots into her body. Hazel worked at a waitress at the nearby Westmont Country Club. She was taken to a hospital where she would survive another month before succumbing to an embolism. Mere minutes after the shooting, Reuben Carter was in the back of a rented white Dodge Polara, a 1966 white Dodge Polara. That'll be important later. The car was driven by his friend John Artis, and another man, John Royster, was in the passenger seat. The trio had just left another bar in Patterson called the Night Spot. They were stopped by a police cruiser. A Carter was recognized, and they were let go. Later that night, the very same officers that had stopped Carter and his friends got a description of the getaway vehicle by a couple of witnesses, one a rather dubious source. Pauline Valentine resided above the bar. She had heard the shots, and she had also heard Hazel scream. She saw a white car with a geometric sort of design, sort of a butterfly type of design, she said, screech away into the night. Then there is Alfred Bellow. Bellow at first told police that he was simply walking outside when he also saw the white car with its butterfly headlights, taillights, I'm sorry, speed away. However, later he came clean and said that he was uh, playing the part of a lookout as his accomplice, Arthur Bradley, broke into a nearby warehouse. 
He then said that he went into the Lafayette bar to buy cigarettes and ran into the men as they fled the bar. After they were gone, he stepped over the bodies and helped himself to the $62 that was in the cash register. Then, after that, Bradley and him returned to break it into the warehouse. He was uh, later offered leniency by the cops and ended up IDing Carter and Artis. But let's go back to the early morning of the 17th. The police, now armed with two eyewitness accounts of a white sedan and two African-American suspects, went back and tracked down Carter and Artis. When they found the men again, they had uh, dropped off Royster, so it was just those two. The two men were found at the intersection of 18th Street and Broadway and were ordered to follow the police back to the bar, to the crime scene. Reuben Carter and John Artis were arrested later that morning. The investigation, as you might imagine, uh, wasn't great. At the scene, they did not attempt to recover any fingerprints or take pictures of the skid marks made by the car. Even the first time the two men were pulled over is mired in mystery. When the cruiser got word of the description of the car, they found a white car matching the description. It was followed closely by a black car. Instead of just pulling the car over right then and there, the police decided to go up and around the block in an attempt to cut off the white car's path. When they got around the block, they only found one white car. Reuben and John's car. Carter's and Artis' descriptions didn't even match that given by the witnesses, including Willie Martin's. So Willie did survive, like he played dead and later gave, you know, some some uh, testimonies and some suspect, you know, he, he uh, helped give a description of the suspects. The suspects were described as light-skinned, dressed in dark clothing, and one had a pencil-thin mustache. Both Carter and Artis were dark-skinned. Carter, being short and a boxer, was very stocky. Uh, uh, Artis was was a was a skinny dude, but you know they both weren't long and skinny. Neither one had a thin mustache. Carter did have a goatee, a very thick, full goatee. So I don't know how Carter would have been able to grow a goatee in the span of like 20 minutes, you know. But I digress. Also, both men were dressed in light clothing. Then there's the car itself. The police looked the car over and impounded it, but never even took carpet samples to look for blood from the crime scene. Five days later, the police decided to take another look at the rental car, and this time, surprise, they found a shotgun shell and a 38 cartridge. However, they didn't match the ones found at the scene. They were like a different color, different brand, all sorts of stuff. And during trial, the prosecution couldn't quite explain the reason for a difference. I think, if I'm remembering correctly, they chalked it up to like, uh, the court records are wrong, or our records are incorrect. But no, these are, you know, stuff like that. Finally, there's the matter of the butterfly-shaped headlights. Both Vet Bello, sorry, and Valentine said they saw red butterfly-shaped taillights as the car sped off. But here's the problem with that. The the uh, 66 Dodge Monaco has full red taillights. The whole assembly is red. The Dodge Polara doesn't. On the 
ends of the Polaris taillight assembly are red, and the rest, I'm not quite sure, I looked at some pictures, the rest is either, like, clear, like, like, backing lights, or it's like a chrome piece. I can't quite figure out which is which. And later in testimony by Valentine, she would change her description to match the correct taillights. This coupled with Bellow's sudden leniency deal with the police, which led him to IDing Carter and Artis, fostered ideas of them being coerced by the police. And I want to go back to these taillights for a little bit. Um, of course, like all of these cases of wrongfully accused people, there are detractors. There are people that are like, nope, they got it right the first time. And uh, I did stumble upon a website. I didn't link it because I didn't spend too much time on it. But I did notice that... Um, they they kind of flipped that on its side and tried to say that Ono oh Bello said that they weren't a complete completely red that they were red and white, but here's the problem with that that can't possibly be right because if 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 Bello did say that they were not complete red tail lights, then or if even if Valentine didn't say that, then they have to be the dumbest people in the world. I'm going to explain now. So the Monaco and the Polara are essentially the same car. I think the Monaco was like the, the more expensive car, but the same body just with different trim and different, you know, little differences here and there, but based off the same thing. And so what you had was you had a taillight assembly on the back, a big one, that started on the fenders and went inwards onto the trunk. So the Polaris taillight assembly was it had a little square on the fender that stopped at the panel gap where the trunk started. And that was red. And it was square, but it was starting to get smaller because basically what it was was like these two kind of triangle-shaped, you know, butterfly-shaped kind of shape. I don't know how to say it. That gets, that gets skinnier, that gets thinner as it gets closer to the uh, middle of the trunk. So on the Polara, it, you know, only the little square on the fenders is red. Once it hops over to the trunk, it's that clear, that chrome piece that, that's kind of the, the butterfly skinny shape. On the Monaco, however, that's red the whole way through and everything's a light. The light's on the trunk. It looks like it's one big piece. I guess is a better way of explaining it. Whereas, like, on the Monaco, it just looks like it's one gigantic red taillight. Whereas, on the Polara, it just looks like it's a much smaller red taillight just on the fenders. But it's, this, you know, it's a very similar shape. So for you to, like, mix that up and try to claim that the Polara had butterfly-shaped taillights doesn't hold a lot of weight with me. But, uh, I don't know, I had to get off on a tangent for a little bit. But there you go. If that made sense... Great. If not, uh, just Google like the Dodge Mon 66 Dodge Monaco and 66 Polara and take a look at the taillights. Raymond Brown, the defense lawyer, focused on the many inconsistencies given by Bello. He had also found evidence that both Carter and Artis were still at the night spot when the shooting occurred. Even with all this, and no real physical evidence linking the two to the crime, the all-white jury found the two men guilty. In 1974, Billow and uh, Valentine withdrew their, their IDs of Carter and Artis. This would be the start of the two men getting a new trial. Funds were raised, Muhammad Ali supported the campaign, and of course, 
Bob Dylan, along with, uh, I think, Jacques Levy, wrote the song Hurricane. And that's why I wanted to do this episode, because Hurricane is actually kind of one of my favorite Bob Dylan songs. I really wanted to learn more about the story behind that one. During the recantation hearing, it was discovered that both Bello and Valentine had told the jury that their deals that they had made with the prosecutors were uh, far less than what they actually were. Since these full details had not been released to the jury at the time, or probably even the defense for that matter, uh, it was pretty much a Brady violation, and this is what got them a new trial. In 1976, a new trial was held. Even with the news of the Brady violation, the convictions were upheld. John Artis was a paroled in 1981. Then, in 1985, Carter and his attorneys filed in federal court for a writ of habeas corpus. Federal judge Haddon Lee uh, Sorokin, I believe is how you say his last name, granted the writ. In November, Reuben Carter, then 48, was freed without bail. Carter then moved to Toronto and became a Canadian citizen. From 1993 to 2005, he was the director of the AIDWIC, the Association in Defense of the Wrongfully Convicted. Reuben Carter passed away from prostate cancer on April 20th of 2014. It was actually John Artis, who had been caring for Carter in his last days, who confirmed his death. He was cremated, and his ashes were scattered at Cape Cod and a horse farm in Kentucky. And that is the story of the hurricane. The man the authorities came to blame. And of course, like there's, oh, like I said, there's always people that are trying to say that it was these guys, but no matter what you do, I mean, even if you go, oh, I can match up these timelines, it doesn't make any sense. They didn't fit a description given by several witnesses, you know, uh, no physical evidence was ever found. I mean, the shotgun shell and the, the bullet casing found in a rental car are dubious at best. I don't think that those were ever in there. Um, you know, it just, it stinks of everything. Just like all of these, like, railroaded wrongful convictions do. And, uh, you know, like, there have been people that said, oh, they dumped, they dumped the, uh, the weapons at a friend's house. Like, the guns, never been found. The people, never been found. Um, and I don't think they ever will be. Like, my theory on the whole thing is that these men either went in to rob James Oliver, because they knew he'd be closing, and the cash would be out there in the drawer and everything... But what they didn't plan on is that there would still be three customers at the bar. And uh, I think they just, their plan was, we're just going to kill Oliver, take the money, no witnesses. And then they get in there and like, well, now there's three more people. We have to kill everybody. And I think it was too much commotion. I think there was too much gunfire. Uh, their stupid plan backfired bad and they got out of there. And... I think that's that's what I go with, or maybe it was some kind of hit on one of those people in there. Who knows? You know, maybe maybe somebody owed somebody money. I don't think we'll ever know, but I'm pretty sure, as most people are, that it was not Reuben Carter and it was not John Artis. 
but I've got another one for you. Let's uh, let's move on and talk about the case of Sam Shepard out of Bay Village, Ohio. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Bay Village lies in the northeast of Ohio, right next to Lake Erie. It started out as land owned by Connecticut, but then Ohio became a state. Then at that time, the land was given over to Connecticut citizens 
whose homes had been destroyed due to the Revolutionary War. It was in this town, now with a population of around 15,000, that neurosurgeon Sam Shepard killed his wife. Except he didn't. And then they made a TV show about it. Sam Shepard and his wife Marilyn were high school sweethearts. They married in 1945, after Sam had graduated from the Los Angeles Osteopathic School of Physicians. Sam worked at the Los Angeles County Hospital until 1951, when his father and brothers convinced him to move back to Bay Village to join the family practice. Sam, Marilyn, and their son, Samuel, also known as Chip, also known as Sam Jr., uh, took them up on the offer and made the move across the country. On July 3rd, 1954, the young couple had hosted a few friends, and at around midnight, the Shepherd's Company took their leave. Marilyn, then four months pregnant, went upstairs to bed, while Sam fell asleep downstairs. Early in the morning, on the 4th of July, Shepard was blasted awake by the screams of his wife upstairs. Startled, he raced up those stairs and to the bedroom. He saw a white form hovering over his wife on the bed. Sam and the intruder struggled. Then Sam was knocked unconscious. Moments later, he awoke and confronted the intruder again, this time downstairs. He chased the bushy-haired intruder, as he that's how he would describe it, down to the beach, towards the lake. They fought again, and Sam was knocked out again. This time, he woke up on the beach, missing his shirt, and had a bloodstain on his knee. The bushy-haired white form had fled into the night. It's a flimsy story, to be sure, and Sam didn't really help his case much. Instead of calling the police, he called the mayor, who lived down the street. The mayor and his wife then came over to Shepard's house, and then they called the police. When the police showed up, they found a grisly scene. Downstairs was a shirtless and disoriented Sam Shepard. Upstairs, they found Marilyn, with her pajama top pulled up over her breast and her bottoms pulled down. She had severe blunt force trauma to her head. Her face was unrecognizable. At around 8 that morning, Sam Gerber, the Cuyahoga counter coroner, arrived on the scene. There were no signs of force entry and no murder weapon. However, there was a trail of blood that was found leading from upstairs and out the front door. Some of Shepard's belongings were found in a bush outside, as well as some overturned drawers. Garber immediately sensed that the scene had been staged to look like a robbery. Garber didn't believe Sam's story and thought all of it was fabricated. Everything kept coming up Millhouse for Shepard. He refused to talk to police under doctor's orders. The problem many had with that was that this doctor was his brother, Stephen. Then, two weeks after the murder, an editorial in the Cleveland press cried for a coroner's inquest. An inquest Sham Sam Gerber was all happy to do. The inquest was a media circus. It lasted for three days, 
where Shepard was grilled about almost every aspect of his life. During the inquest, it was revealed that he had had an affair with a lab technician named Susan Hayes. He lied about the affair, which didn't do him any favors. At one point during the inquest, his lawyer, William Corrigan, was ordered to sit in the audience. And when Corrigan protested the jeering from the audience, he was kicked out. Shepard was arrested for his wife's murder on July 24th. His trial started in October and frankly was a sham. Media were led into the courtroom. On the first day, Shepard was led in handcuffs from the courthouse to his home along with the jury to be given a tour of the house, now an infamous crime scene. The jury was also shown a slideshow of Marilyn's autopsy photos. Shepard wasn't even permitted to leave the courtroom while the slideshow went on. When Sam Gerber took the stand, he insinuated that a bloody outline around Marilyn's body, or around her bed more rather, had come from a surgical instrument. An instrument, of course, that only Sam Shepard could have had. To add insult to injury, Shepard's lawyer had never been given access to any of the physical evidence and he couldn't cross-examine Gerber about his claim. I mean, all that aside, like, no murder weapon was ever found, so you can't say it was this or that anyway. But I know that you're probably hearing that and going, well, that is that is a Brady violation all over the place. Problem with that was, and I think I mentioned this before, Brady wasn't, like, a law. It wasn't a thing until the earlier mid-60s. This is the mid-50s, so... There was no Brady violation. Um, but yeah, that if this would have happened 10 years later, this would have been Brady for sure. I mean, it was, but legally it would have been Brady. And in the final blow, Susan Hayes herself took the stand and admitted to the affair. And then later, so did he. Corrigan did find three witnesses that testified to seeing a bushy-haired man around the home that night. A sketch was even made. This, however, did nothing to help his case. After five days of deliberation, he was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison with parole after 10 years. Two weeks after the verdict, Sam's mother committed suicide. Then his father died of a hemorrhaging ulcer a week after that. His brothers, however, supported him fully. They hired their own forensic scientist, Dr. Paul Leak. Leak discovered some interesting things. He found evidence that uh, Marilyn had bit her attacker. Shepard had no bite marks on him. Leak looked intensively at the blood spatter and concluded that a large section of, a, of the blood-soaked wall in the bedroom was clean of blood. This meant that whomever killed Mary would have been covered in blood. Shepard was not. The blood pattern also determined that the suspect was left-handed. Once again, Shepard was not. Even with this new evidence, Sam was not able to get a retrial. That was until famed lawyer F. Lee Bailey took his case, and he took it right to the Supreme Court. Bailey argued that Shepard's rights had been violated at least five times during his trial. Bailey's argument, along with the uncovering of Judge uh, Blythin, who was the judge that presided over Shepard's appeal for retrial, 
had told reporter Dorothy Kilgallen that a, quote, Shepard's guilty as hell, and the trial was a mere formality. On November 16, 1966, Dr. Sam Shepard was released. Even after his release, things did not go well for Shepard. He got his medical license back, he got it reinstated, but he lost it soon after due to allegations of malpractice. He turned to drug and to drink. He was married and divorced twice, and uh, he started wrestling under the name Killer Shepherd. Probably not the best name to be uh, going with there. Then, on April 6th of 1970, Sam Shepard died from liver failure at the age of 46. The TV series The Fugitive was based on Shepard's case. It would later be made into a movie starring Tommy Lee Jones and Harrison Ford. There were other suspects in the case. Effley Bailey had formulated a theory that Marilyn was having an affair with a man named Spencer Hoke. He had a lot of evidence and a lot of ideas pointing to this man. So I've linked, there's a great, I found a great resource from the Cleveland State University, I think, um, that just shows like the sketches in there and all the police reports of the three or four people that had seen this guy that you know during the night, and then all of this stuff about Spencer Hoke and another suspect that I'll get into. And there's a great letter by Effley Bailey who wrote to the police chief all of his ideas of why he thought Hoke and maybe even Hoke's wife were in on it and done it. Um, so I highly suggest I've linked the, I've linked his letter separately in the show notes, so I highly suggest taking a read of it, sitting down and reading of it. He makes some good points. I've, I'm going to go through a couple of the ones that I think are really strong. Uh, he makes some maybe not so great points, some maybe some loose stuff, but I think had he been allowed, like, if, if had the Spencer Hoke connection had been allowed to come out of the original trial, there would have been enough there to really cast doubt that it would have that that it was uh, Shepard with you know without a reasonable doubt, but let's go through a couple of Effley Bailey's ideas about Spencer Hoke. Uh, he knew the Shepherds well, so he knew the layout of the house, and he was friendly enough with their dog for him not to bark when he came to the house that night. That was a big sticking point for a lot of people. That if it was an intruder, how come their dog didn't bark? Hoke even had a key. Marilyn's uh, clothes had not been ripped or torn, but seemed to have been taken off as if a consensual sex had occurred. Spencer and Marilyn had been observed and embraced twice by the morning bread delivery person. Apparently back in the day, you could get your bread delivered to you. He would also show up almost every morning for coffee, presumably, I guess, after Shepard left for work. He was there so much that a young friend of Marilyn's named Gene Dispro, at a time before the murder was committed, had commented to him, quote, are you living here now? Uh, Bailey was told by Dispro that before the murder, Marilyn had told her she no longer wanted to be alone with Hoke. Dispro surmised that, that she was trying to break off the affair, which would give possible motive. Bailey thought that Spencer Hoke went to the house that night because he thought Sam was not at home. 
Spencer Hoke also had a wife, Esther. Bailey cast suspicion on her as well. Esther was left-handed. Had she followed her husband that night? If she would have walked, she would have taken a flashlight, perhaps to see in the dark. Then upon finding out what was going on, beat Marilyn to death with said flashlight out of jealousy? The wounds on Marilyn's body did not seem to be inflicted with a great amount of strength, which could mean that the injuries were inflicted by a woman and not so much a man. Um, you know, and then you kind of think about, like, had Sam seen her that night, who knows what kind of crazy hair she had in the middle of the night after being woke up, could it have appeared of a bushy-haired man to some people in the dark not knowing what was going on? Oh, yeah, one more thing. Spencer Hoke was the mayor of Bay Village at the time. It was Spencer Sam had called that night. It was Spencer and Esther who had come over before the police did. So there's some good stuff in there. Like, could they have possibly have come over and also planted some more evidence to make it look like a robbery? Like, did they, you know, was it Esther that did it? And they both freaked out and they tried to cover up the crime. There's, it's, it's kind of convoluted, but it's possible. I think it would have cast enough doubt to have someone look into it. Sam's son was determined to clear his father's name. He also found a compelling suspect. He found a man named Richard Eberling, who used to wash his parents' windows. Sam Jr. went to have a talk with Eberling, who at the time was in prison for murdering an elderly woman. Eberling denied the murder of Marilyn, but he did draw Sam Jr. a map of his childhood home complete with a seldom-known entrance into the basement. Sam Jr. and attorney Terry Gilbert found records that Eberling had been arrested five years after the murder for burglary. He had two of Marilyn's rings in his possession, apparently, or allegedly maybe is a better word, stolen from a box of Marilyn's things at one of Shepard's brothers' homes. Then, in 1997, Shepard's body was exhumed and tissue samples were used to extract DNA. This DNA evidence closed the book on Shepard's guilt. None of his DNA matched any of the evidence left from the murder. Furthermore, a spot of blood found on the bedroom closet door was found not to be a match to Marilyn or Sam Shepard. Eberling died in 1998. He never gave a DNA sample. In one last twist, a fellow convict of Eberling, Robert Lee Parks, claimed that Richard Eberling had confessed to him before he died that he was indeed the bushy-haired intruder that murdered Marilyn Shepard that night. Bay Village is home to many things, but the twisting, turning case of Sam Shepard Anna's wife, Marilyn, will always be at the forefront. And that is it. If you've ever watched The Fugitive, I think, what's the difference? I don't think I've ever sat down and watched The Fugitive. But, like, wasn't the whole difference that it wasn't a bushy-haired man, that it was, like, a one-armed, one-eyed man or something just as ludicrous? I may have to sit down and watch The Fugitive maybe this weekend or something. i got nothing better to do. But that's where that story comes from. That's 
the based on a true story of the fugitive, the story of Sam Shepard. So here we are at the middle of the show. We're going to listen to, I think I'm going to play uh, Ritual at the Crossroads again, just because we haven't busted it out in a while, and I really dig that one. But when we come back, we've got the local headlines, and I've got a huge update on on Ferrar School and what happened with the Ouija board when we come back from intermission. So don't go anywhere. Thank you. 
All right. So I think uh, all three of these stories come from England this this episode. The first one is from NewsInteract.com, a.k.a. The Ancient Files. Uh, no real, I don't see a writer on this, but the headline reads, 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 University professor reveals he has discovered population of fairies and publicly shows the proof. Professor John Hyatt, wow, not like not like musician John Hyatt, has recently issued quite a bizarre statement, to say the least. He reported that he had met up in the past with multiple strange creatures that were never before reported by academia, and according to them, they do not exist to begin with either. Needless to say, making such statements is always just inviting trouble as most people will begin shunning you down for it and mocking you almost instantly. The only way to fight the criticism is with hard-earned evidence, which is exactly what John brought over. He claimed that a whole civilization of fairies lives in the English countryside of Rosendale, and he's brought pictures to back up his claims too. He stated that the fairies are very similar to us physically, except for the overall size of the body were practically identical to one another. He's not the only one with proof, however, and back in 2009, a woman named Phyllis Bacon snapped a quick photo of what appears to be a living fairy flying around her garden in New Addington in southern London. But it doesn't end there. Francis Griffiths also reportedly fell into a stream while playing around with these fairies back in 1917, according to the most reports. It is actually quite impossible to resist their temptation, and if they seek something that you can provide, you can't fight against it in the slightest. What do you think? Check out the following video and let us know. So there's a YouTube video, I think, that just kind of shows him and a bunch of pictures of these fairies, and they do have what appear to be little legs, little arms, and little wings, but I don't know if it's just some kind of bug that we don't know, like, that, that's just being misidentified or a Photoshop job. But his photos are actually kind of interesting to take a look at, and the photos from uh, Phyllis Bacon, that one is kind of interesting too. It shows pretty much the uh, same thing. I would almost say that her picture is a better, clearer picture than his art. Uh, but the next one, the next one is scary, everyone. This is from Yahoo News. That's not the scary part. Uh, this is by Eli Manning. Baboons carry knives and chainsaw spotted in Safari Park. Baboons at a popular safari park have been spotted with knives, screwdrivers, and even a chainsaw, according to report reports. The primates at the Nosley Safari Park in Maryside are already known for their destructive abilities and have been pictured previously pulling things from visitors' cars. Uh, but now, some staff are concerned that the baboons are being given weapons for a laugh by park-goers, according to the Sunday Times. One worker told the newspaper, we're not sure if they're being given weapons by some of the guests or who want to see them attack cars or if they're fishing them out of pickup trucks and vans. The workers said the animals sometimes go into people's toolboxes to grab what they can, adding one of the baboons was seen lugging around a chainsaw. Another said that some had been found with knives and screwdrivers 
and also questioned whether the baboons were being armed by the visitors on purpose. The baboons are already known for causing damage to people's vehicles, with one mechanic telling the Sunday Times that he had repaired cars left damaged by the primates. But the safari park had suggested that the baboons were being armed with weapons was likely to be an urban myth, saying some of the tales had grown in exaggeration as they had been shared to make uh, objects found in the animal's enclosure seem more exciting and unbelievable. Nosley, which is home to animals including lions, tigers, and rhinos, reopened on June 15th. Its website includes reassurance that measures to make it COVID secure are in place, including reminding guests, if you take time to drive through our bamboo, our baboon jungle, we're unable to return any car parts that our cheeky baboons may take, whilst pointing out that a car-friendly route is available. Uh, so that's what we have to look forward to in September, everyone, is uh, the baboons with knives and chainsaws are coming for us all. And my last one comes from Coast to Coast, courtesy of Tim Banal, a video crop circle created around a tree. One of the more unique crop circles to appear in quite some time was recently spotted in England and features a tree at the center of the design. The fantastic formation was reportedly found this past Monday in a field near the community of Devizes. Although not particularly intricate, the design, which consists of a large circle surrounded by a ring that features four smaller spheres, is undeniably eye-catching thanks to its creative incorporation of a tree in the field. Understandably, interpretations as to what the formation might be meant to convey have focused on its centerpiece, with some suggesting that it's supposed to represent the tree of life, and the four surrounding circles are the seasons of the year. Given the countless number of crop circles that have appeared over the years, it stands to reason that the design is probably not the first formation to sport a tree in its center. That said, a cursory search online has uh, so far failed to yield any similar cases from the past. So it very well could be an original concept, and it is a cool design. It's also kind of weird that there's this tree in the middle of a, like a field. like why like you've got a plant around it then you've got a combine you got a harvest around it seems kind of like a pain in the ass to have your tree in the middle of a field uh, i'd be kind of curious to find out like what that story is like is it a like endangered is it some kind of special tree to the surrounding area or to the people on the property but interesting crop circle and i guess crop circles have been making a comeback and there's been a lot of them this year more than there have been in a lot of recent years but there you go. That is this week's local headlines, all linked in the show notes, so you can go and take a look at all the videos and pictures that are posted in those articles. But you know what? It's time to move on to your small town secrets. Uh, I've only got one small town, your small town secret to share, but it's a big one. So if you haven't listened to the last episode about Ferrar School, then uh, uh, go ahead and listen to it. I'll wait. Are they gone? All right. So I had reached out to Lisa Cavanda, who was one of the people that had the... She was the one that got pushed, shoved across the uh, library at the school uh, with the Ouija board session. 
And I reached out to her on Twitter, and I tried to get to see if she would, you know, tell me exactly what happened. I was interested in what they were asking, like what the question was that uh, that ha- that was asked and answered right before that happened. And uh, she did get back with me, but it wasn't until, like, I almost want to say the day after the episode was released. But she sent me not just what the question was, she sent me everything. So I've got uh, the inside poop, if you will, on that entire encounter. So uh, this is kind of stitched together from a couple of Twitter DMs. She first sent me uh, this. She she told me that I'll try to find the actual notebook that Sandy was transcribing the letters as we were getting them. However, initially it seemed like a child. The reports were that a young girl who was in a wheel who was wheelchair bound spent most of her time in the library, which is the room we were in. But then it changed very quickly. The response to the question about who or what was scaring or chasing the young girl away. I remember Beth asking if we were in danger right before I went airborne. I had actual handprints on my back. Unfortunately, we couldn't get a decent photo with the lighting. I just moved, and this was a decade ago, but I know I'd kept that notebook. Um, and she wrote down the questions, and she wrote down the responses. Then she messaged me back a little while later, uh, You're not going to believe it, but I found the notes. So here's pretty much the transcript of the entire spirit board session. Uh, the first thing she types in is Injuno, which is not really a word, but that's what they got. U-N-J-N-O. And then they ask, Are you Jerica? And in parentheses, girl in the wheelchair. No. Name? Uh, Unrija. Do you like it here? No. Is something mean to you? No. Do you have friends here? No. Do you want to leave? Yes. Why can't you leave? No. Are you afraid? Always. Is what you're afraid of here? Yes. Are you a boy or a girl? Bye. What year is it? 56. How did you die? Go. Do you want us to go? No. How did you die? 23. In an accident? No. Were you sick? Yes. Did you die here? And then they get F-A-F-A-F. Are you confused? Do you want to talk do you want us to talk to you? Then they get DF. Why are you here at the school? And then they get C R O R T. Is that a name? A friend? Bye. Is there something here that wants to hurt us? Are we in danger? Then they get yes and then go. Is something going to happen? Soon. Is it in the room now? No. Soon. Is it coming to us? Are we going to it? Just. And that's all it says, just just. Do you want it to hurt us? Yes. Why do you want it to hurt us? Because. Are you a little girl or something else? Then some by hen. And when you watch the video, that's what they're spelling out. The... I thought they had said some. They had said something, but they were spelling out S O M, B H Y, H I N G or H I N, and that's when I went airborne. But 
that's everything that led up to the incident you saw. Hopefully this is helpful to you. And then uh, she came back and she kind of uh, wrote about why they were there and the whole reason for the investigation and stuff. So this is what she sent me near the end. Uh, this was covered by Destination America, Ghost Stalkers, which is what we talked about, episode six. However, I am not happy with the way the incident was handled. Uh, neither was I, neither were a lot of people. We were asked by the owners to dispense the Ouija board, and they made it appear that we had brought it with us. And they didn't bring them with it. They found it there. I agreed to a controlled experiment with equipment to see if we could correlate anything on our instruments to support the paranormal activity associated with an Ouija board. I did some Mel and K2 readings, and there's sort of a whooshing sound right before I was shoved. Uh, that never made it into the show. I understand they were pushing for a second season, so they cherry-picked the two or three lines from a two-hour recording to make up the story they wanted, but that's television, right? I'm still shocked that I found that little notebook inside my equipment case. So she also told me that at the time she was with a group called Enlight Paranormal, but they're no longer in existence, and now she is affiliated with Paracon Investigations, which is Paracon on Facebook, and ParaconInvestigations.com. So I will link uh, that link in the show notes if you want to go check out their website. Uh, she's also an author, and I think I linked her website in the last episode on the Ferrar episode, so you can find her uh, her website there. But that that is what happened that night, uh, straight from the person who experienced it. So that was pretty cool. And like I said, I've got someone else who I'm really... I'm in the ballpark of almost getting on this show. Uh, if it happens, it'll be amazing. But also about Ferrar School. And uh, if it happens, you'll know it. And if it doesn't happen, I'll tell everyone the story and what it entailed. But that's going to do it for this uh, this episode's edition of Your Small Town Secrets. And that is another True Crime Night, another episode in the bag. Um, I want to apologize if people are hearing uh, the new modem router that I have now is you can kind of hear it blipping and bleeping over like it's interfering with uh, with uh, the equipment because I have to record in here. I'm only like a few feet away from it. I want to see if I can find some way of shielding it. So depending on how good your headphones are or how loud you're listening to this you might hear that and if you do i apologize i'm going to see if i can render that issue uh, as well but you know sorry so that i think that's like i said that's going to do it uh thanks everyone for listening uh thanks everyone over at patreon my uh patreon supporters for supporting the show if you want to get in on patreon you can go to stscast.com. You can click on the support tab and you'll find a Patreon link there. Uh, and you can also find merch on the website. You can submit a story if you want to be, if you have a story for your small town secrets, that's probably the best way to get it to me is to go to the website, uh, go down the bottom of that main page and there's an email form there that you can fill out and send it to me. But you can also get it to me on social media uh, if you want to follow the show on that on social media, it's at STScast on both Twitter and Facebook. I'm most active on Twitter, and I'm also on Instagram at 
stscast.gram. So if you've got a story, a true crime experience, a paranormal experience, or just weird history of your town and you want to share it, uh, we can do that. You can write in. We can do Skype interview. You can send me an article about something, and we'll we'll get it on the show, and we'll let, we'll let everyone know about it. Uh, if you, like I said, if you want to support the show, Patreon is a great way to go. Buying merch is a great way to go. If you can't support it financially, please just rate it and review it on your podcatcher of choice, especially if it's iTunes. Uh, that helps it get to the top, you know, ever more to the top. And really the, the great thing to do, just get another friend to listen to the show. I say it all the time. I say it every episode. If everyone that listens to the show gets one more person to listen to the show, then uh, we double. The audience doubles and uh, everything gets bigger. So there, I'm kind of done plugging the show, I guess. So um, next week is an episode I am very excited for. Uh, it's a It's an episode that I talked about earlier wanting to do it but not being able to do it because it doesn't fit the format of the show. It doesn't take place in a small town. Or at least I thought at the time that it didn't. But some new information has come to light uh, about where some stuff actually took place. And I was able to get this to work for the show. And it was actually linked to another story. So it made the whole episode. I'm really excited for it. I'm not going to tell you what it is yet, but I will say this. On the uh, STS Backroads podcast, which is the exclusive Patreon podcast, if you listen to that, I have started letting people who listen to that know what the next episode of this show is going to be. So, you know, if you hop on there and join that that tier for that show, you'll get a little sneak peek, a little uh, inside baseball as to what the next episode of this show is. It's going to be, but it's going to be an episode. I've been looking forward to it the entire season. I'm so glad we get to do it. So until then, remember, every town has a secret. What is yours? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.